fall away on account of me. And sure enough, that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, all of them fled. Might I even suggest that these men lack spiritual understanding? Recall how Jesus reproved them. Are you without understanding? You just don't get it, do you? Had we been called to assemble 12 men to change the world, these 12 wouldn't have made it through the resume part of the process. Fishermen, no thanks. Fishermen, no thanks. Fishermen, no. Fishermen, no. Tax collector, are you kidding me? And let's face it, these, these men, they, they weren't voted most likely to succeed in the Galilean yearbook. They were a diverse group of nobodies. In fact, the only thing they had in common was that they were ordinary. Just that, that they were ordinary. These 12 men were ordinary, but they were just whom Jesus wanted. Scripture tells us in verse 13, it says, Those he wanted he called, and those that he called came. The apostles didn't choose Jesus, he chose them. Twelve ordinary men chosen to do an extraordinary task. And so why on earth would Jesus choose these twelve ordinary men? I think the answer is clear, and it's really the overarching truth of everything I'm going to tell you this morning. And it's so encouraging to us. Be encouraged by this. Why would Jesus choose twelve ordinary men? That way there could be no human explanation for them turning the world upside down. God gets all the glory that way. You see, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Throughout all of Scripture, throughout all of Scripture, we see God using ordinary, incapable, sometimes even unworthy people to do his miraculous tasks. Those whom he called his apostles are no exception. And so my goal this morning with my remaining time is to take a look at each of these 12. Some of them we know much about, some of them we know very, very little about. And so I left your sermon notes blank because I'm going to rock through this thing. I'm just going to throw out scripture references. There's not going to be time to, to look them up. Maybe just write them down. Check me later. Um, but I think we should know something about these men. I got, I got to tell you, when I studied this, I could name about seven. And then I started saying Simon and Judas 15 times because I, just, I wasn't sure. But these are men whose names are going to be on the foundation of the walls of the city of New Jerusalem. And so we should probably know something about them. And so let's start with Simon. Good place to start. Simon Peter, of all the different listings of the apostles in Scripture, Simon is always listed first. We know that he and his brother Andrew were fishermen, originally from Bethsaida. He was the leader and spokesman of the apostles, but make no mistake about it, he was rough around the edges. Simon was known as the apostle with a foot-shaped mouth. He was brash, he was bold, he was shifting and impulsive. He was characterized by spiritual highs and crashing lows. There was no gray area with him. He was tough-minded, yet unreliable and unstable. Matthew 16 details just one of the many examples of the extremes in Simon's ministry. In Matthew 16, we, we see that, that profound confession where, where Simon says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And upon hearing this, Jesus gave him the name Peter, which means rock, and 
he, he hands him the keys to the kingdom of heaven, which was basically a commissioning of him to, to preach. And we see Peter doing that in Acts, through Acts 12, really. Peter is the one preaching and spreading the gospel. Yet Peter goes from this spiritual high in, in Matthew 16 to spiritual low just a few verses later, beginning in verse 21. It says, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day and raised again. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Simply amazing to me. What, what vast extremes we see here from this leader of the apostles. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But, th- but then a little time later, he pulls him aside and says, come, come on, Jesus, I know you're the Son of God and all, but we've got to talk about this whole plan to die and be resurrected again. I, I'm not buying it. Not on my watch, Jesus. It's not going to happen. Sounds like a great way of describing the leader of the twelve apostles. Get behind me, Satan. These spiritual highs and lows characterize Peter's entire time with Jesus. We see another example in John 6 where Jesus begins preaching to the crowd that had gathered, saying, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me and I in him. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And when his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard teaching. Who can listen to this? And many of them turned their back and walked away. And so Jesus says to the twelve, he says, to the twelve apostles, Jesus says, do you want to go away as well? And I love Peter's response. Spiritual high. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words to eternal life. And we've believed and we've come to know that you're the Holy One of God. Very profound from Peter. You think that Peter's finally got this thing figured out, right? He he wades through the whole eat my flesh, drink my blood speech to understand that this really is the Christ, the one who holds the, the, the words to eternal life. You think he's got it figured out, spiritual high, to the Passover feast where Jesus says, you'll all fall away because of me this night. But Peter said, though they might fall away, I will never fall away. Jesus said, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. But after Jesus is arrested, Peter sits in a courtyard and a servant girl approaches him and said, hey, aren't you also with Jesus? And Peter responds, I don't know what you mean. And another servant girl says, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And Peter responds, I don't know the man. Finally, a bystander approached. He said, certainly you two are one of them. And Peter exclaims, I never knew the man. And just then, spiritual high. Where else would we go? You alone hold the words to eternal life. 
spiritual low. I never knew him. All of this to say that Peter's young spiritual life probably didn't look that much different from that of yours or mine. It was filled with spiritual highs and spiritual lows. But Peter would go on to become the rock that Jesus projected him to be. His preaching from the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 is really the beginning of the church as we know it today. Tradition has it that Peter was arrested by the Romans under the rule of Emperor Nero. He was tortured, and then upon his own wishes, he was crucified upside down because he didn't find himself worthy to be crucified as Jesus his Lord. Peter was an ordinary man chosen by an extraordinary God. And so let's take a look now at James and John. We'll kind of group them because they fit well together. They were brothers, James and John. They were sons of Zebedee, we know. James is not to be confused with the other apostle, James the son of Alphaeus or James the Less, nor is he to be confused with James the half-brother of Jesus who wrote the book of James. That's not him. James and John, like Peter, they were fishermen. And together with Peter, they actually formed the inner three of all the twelve apostles. These three were the closest to Jesus. We see them on the Mount of Transfiguration together. And we also see from the text that Jesus gave James and John the nickname Bonerges, which means sons of thunder. And this really just describes their personality. They were fervent, they were zealous, they were thunderous, passionate, sometimes even volatile and insensitive. James was an apostle who craved prominence, while John was a, an apostle who demanded the truth. You know, we, no better place do we see this volatileness is in Luke 9, 51 to 56. We see the, their explosive personality. If you recall, this is where the Samaritan village wouldn't welcome Jesus. And what's James and John's response? Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> it's pretty easy to see why they're known as the sons of thunder. Jesus, I mean, let's just call fire down from heaven and zap them. But Jesus quickly rebuked them. He said, you don't even know what spirit you're of. I'm here to save men's lives, not destroy them. Matthew 20, 20 gives us another look at James and John's zealousness. This time they, they got their mother involved, if you recall. They, they, they got their mother to implore of Jesus to, to ask, you know, could my son sit on your right and left hand someday in the kingdom? What an interesting view of these two, you know. Call fire down from heaven one point, calling mommy to do their dirty work the next is, it's amazing to me that these were part of the twelve. But while James and John had misguided fervor at times, being around Jesus would soften their hearts. We know that in Acts 12, we see that James gave his life for the gospel, executed by the sword of Herod. John would go on to become the disciple whom Jesus loved. And there's no better picture of that than in John 19. I love this, where where Jesus is on the cross and he, he looks and he sees his mother and he sees the disciple whom he loved and, and he says, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple he says, here is your mother. Basically entrusting the care of his mother to the apostle he loved, John. John would be the only disciple that was not martyred while all the rest of the apostles suffered and died. Tradition holds that John suffered and lived. This arrogant, self-centered man with a terrible temper was moved by the love that Jesus showed him. He wrote five books of the New Testament, including Revelation, while he was 
exiled on the Isle of Patmos. James and John were ordinary men chosen by an extraordinary God. We look at Andrew. I love Andrew. Andrew was Peter's brother. And I think that, I mean, if we don't say anything else, that's enough. Because that's how he's always referred to. Peter's brother, Andrew. His life was characterized by living in the shadow of Peter. He, he was a background kind of guy, if you will. We, we, we know that Andrew was also a fisherman. Furthermore, we know from John chapter 1 that he originally was a disciple of John the Baptist. But that all quickly changed when John the Baptist proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God. And immediately Andrew left and followed Jesus. He spends the day with him. And what does he do? The very first thing he does after spending the day with Jesus, he goes and gets his brother Peter and proclaims, We have found the Messiah. This Andrew who, who lived in the shadows introduced Peter, the, the leader of the apostles, to Jesus. Andrew's life is marked as one who, who brought people to Jesus. Whenever we see Andrew in the text, that's what Andrew is doing. Let me give you a couple examples of that. In John 6, in the feeding of the 5,000, it was Andrew who brought the boy with the five loaves and two fish to Jesus. That was Andrew that went and found him and took him. To Jesus. We also see in John chapter 12 where some Greeks wanted to meet Jesus. And they went to Philip, and you're going to find later that Philip, he's kind of sketchy, he's kind of wishy-washy. And so what does Philip do? Philip goes and gets Andrew, and Andrew takes the Greeks to Jesus. Sorry to say that we don't really see anything else about Andrew in Scripture. And that's possibly just another indication of him living in Peter's shadow. But I would say that from what little we do know, hadn't Andrew not been there, he would have been terribly missed. And I want you to get this point from the life of Andrew. It's this. Listen, some of the strongest and most effective leaders in Christian ministry are those who dwell in the shadows. Those people who are not up front, but who are operating quietly behind the scenes. I've got to tell you that this body needs more Andrews than it does Peter's. Yes, we need Peters, we need teachers, we need people who are going to speak. But at the same time, we need people who are quietly working in the shadows, bringing people to Jesus. The Andrews of this body are vital to his success. Tradition has it that Andrew was martyred in 70 A.D. on an X-shaped cross. Upon seeing the cross, I love this, upon seeing the cross, Andrew rejoiced exclaiming, my whole life has been for the cross. It's believed that Andrew was tied to that cross instead of being nailed and suffered there two or three days, all the while preaching the gospel to anyone who would listen. Andrew was an ordinary man, chosen by an extraordinary God. Next we come to Philip. Philip was the pragmatic one. We mentioned him a moment ago. Philip was a skeptical man. He, he looked for material, practical solutions to problems. He was always calculating, you know. We assume he was a student of the Old Testament because we see in John 1.45, when Philip introduces Jesus to Nathanael, Philip says to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We see Philip calculating in John chapter 6 again, the feeding of the 5,000 men which I think is important to understand it does specify 5,000 men, 
It doesn't take into account women and children. We, we probably can assume that this was 10,000, maybe 15,000 people even. 5,000 men, 10,000, 15,000 total. And there's Philip in the, in the midst of this. And, and, and I love Jesus here. He, he tests Philip. He says to Philip, where will we buy bread for these people to eat? And Philip, of course, failed in his answer. If you recall, he says, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have even a little bread. You can almost see Philip nervously calculating it out. Come come on, Jesus, eight months' wages couldn't feed these people. I mean, this is a true skeptic. Because Philip had seen Jesus do miracles already. Yet he didn't think this was possible doesn't get much better for him in John 14 after walking closely with Jesus for a great amount of time Philip asked Jesus Jesus just show us the father and that will be enough for us just show us the father and that will be enough for us you know what Jesus answered he said how long have I been with you and you don't know me Philip the one who has seen me has seen the father Philip was a man who demanded evidence before believing Yet he became one of the most committed Christ followers. Tradition tells us that Philip spent the rest of his life preaching the gospel in Asia Minor. He was martyred in 54 AD. When he wouldn't recant Christ, they put steel rods through his ankles and thighs. They crucified him upside down. Philip was an ordinary man, chosen by an extraordinary God. Next up is Nathaniel Bartholomew. Two names here, Nathaniel Bartholomew. Same guy, two different names. He's introduced to Jesus by Philip. We just talked about that. And Nathaniel was a man who possessed high moral principles, but sometimes that made him really inflexible. Upon hearing that Philip had found the one Moses wrote about in the law, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth, Nathaniel questioned, he says, Can anything good come from Nazareth? Nathaniel was brutally honest and upright. In John 1, 45 and 51, we, when Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said, Behold an Israelite of whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Basically, Jesus is challenging Nathaniel's understanding of his righteousness here. He's saying that the, it's a matter of the heart, Nathaniel. It's, it's, it, salvation is found only in an intimate relationship with Jesus, who is that gate of heaven. Popular tradition holds that Nathaniel's skin was filleted with whips and that he was then crucified. Nathaniel was an ordinary man, chosen by an extraordinary God. Levi, also known as Matthew, the rest of them get fairly quick because we don't know much about them. Hang in there. Matthew was perhaps the apostle with the least amount of integrity. He was a tax collector, and tax collectors at that time were just despised and hated individuals. You see, they sold themselves to the Romans and, and had to give taxes to the Romans. And then anything above that, they just distorted from people for dishonest gain. 
Matthew's ethics defied all truth and honesty. Matthew did write the gospel bearing his name, yet we know very little about him. Perhaps this alludes to the fact that as spending time with Jesus, he became more humble. We don't know. But I'll tell you what we do know from the calling of Matthew. It gives us a glimpse into the heart of Jesus, who after calling him, we find Jesus eating with Matthew and, and the other tax collectors and sinners. And this is what enraged the Pharisees, that Jesus would hang out with this kind of people. According to tradition, and by the way, when I say that, I mean that's not scriptural. That's me studying and just trying to glean some knowledge about what happened to these apostles. just want to make that clear. But according to tradition, Matthew took the gospel to Ethiopia, and he was later beheaded in 60 A.D. Matthew was an ordinary man chosen by an extraordinary God. Next is Thomas. We know a little bit about Thomas. He's well known for being the skeptic of the resurrection, which labeled him Doubting Thomas. And Thomas seemed to have a negative approach about everything. We see this in John 11 where Jesus called to be by the side of Lazarus, who by that time has died. And the disciples exclaimed to Jesus, they said, the Jews tried to stone you there. Now you want to go back? You really want to go back there where they tried to kill you? And in verse 16, we get a picture of Thomas. He says, let's go so that we may die with him. (laughs) Let's just go and die with him. Real glasses half full kind of guy, this Thomas. We see more of his pessimism in John 14 when Jesus talks about his father's house, picking up in verse 2, again, John 14, verse 2. says, in my father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. But Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And that's where we get that great verse, those great verses, really. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you'd known me, Thomas, you'd known my Father also. And so after hearing these two instances, it's no surprise that after the resurrection, Thomas exclaimed, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand into his side, I will never believe. But eight days later, Jesus walks through the locked door. And he says, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and place it in my side, Thomas. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas finally got it. He says, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Tradition holds that Thomas took the gospel to India and was later martyred by a spear. Thomas was an ordinary man, chosen by an extraordinary God. James, son of Alphaeus, is sometimes referred to as James the Less or James the Younger. The only place we get a glimpse of this man, one time we get a picture of him, it's in Mark 15:40, And it's really not even about him, it's about his mother. Verse 40 states, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger. Perhaps the most defining thing about James, son of Alphaeus, is that his mother is mentioned twice in Scripture. 
She was a witness to both the crucifixion and Jesus' burial. Perhaps Scripture's silence speaks to him being ordinary. Tradition states that James was stoned to death in Jerusalem. James, son of Alphaeus, was an ordinary man, chosen by an extraordinary God. Thaddeus, also known as Judas, son of James. Lots of names here. Thaddeus is also known as Judas, the son of James. And there's only really one verse in the, the Bible that mentions Thaddeus, and we find that in John 14, verse 22, where he says, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? That's his claim to fame right there. Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? And Jesus answered him. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father who sent me. You know, what's a little bit interesting here is that in that passage above, it it, it actually calls him Judas, not Iscariot. How would you like to be known as someone you're not? (laughs) I mean, if that doesn't speak to being ordinary, I don't know what does. Other than that, we really don't know anything else about him. According to tradition, he was martyred by being clubbed to death. Even Thaddeus was an ordinary man chosen by an extraordinary God. Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot displayed fierce courage. He was passionate and zealous for the word of God. He was a member of the Jewish party, the Zealots. Makes sense. Uh, the Zealot party was committed to overthrowing the Roman authorities. I mean, these, these people were brutal. They could be considered like the modern-day terrorists. I mean, these people would pull out a knife and stab a Roman in the back without even thinking about it. That was the Zealot party. That was Simon the Zealot. And, and while little is known about Simon the Zealot, what's really amazing about him is that how Jesus picks Simon the Zealot who hated Romans and wanted to kill Romans, and Matthew to serve on the same team. Matthew who sold himself to the Romans. It's amazing that these men didn't kill each other. Tradition has it that Simon the Zealot was martyred for his faith in 74 AD, having been sawn in two. Simon the Zealot was an ordinary man, chosen by an extraordinary God. Which brings us lastly to Judas Iscariot. He's easily the most tragic of all characters in the entire Bible, in my opinion. He was the only apostle that was from Judea. The rest were from Galilee. Judas was a wicked, selfish, and prideful man. In John 17, 12, Jesus said, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you had given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, the scripture might be fulfilled. That phrase there, son of destruction, and in the King James is the, the son of perdition. And, and what that means is basically that Judas's character is just lostness. Lostness is the only way to describe Judas. Only Judas and the Antichrist are described that way in the Bible. Judas was consumed by money. He was the treasure of the apostles, though he helped himself to the money box. We see that in John 12. And tragically, we know that he betrayed the innocent son of God for money, 30 pieces of silver, which was actually the price of a slave. While Judas was a willful sinner, and he was, we need to understand that Judas was a willful sinner. God was shaping all of his wretchedness into his sovereign plan. And so one has to ask, you know, why would Jesus call Judas to be an apostle? 
knowing that he would betray him. And I think that's the answer because there was a divine purpose to fulfill. Friends, I think we need to recall something. This isn't the first time that God called a people to himself that he knew would betray him because God called the Israelites and the Pharisees hated him. They killed him. But these are the 12 men Jesus called, all of them ordinary, all of them common men. But they were called to be the hands and feet of an extraordinary God. I think 1 Corinthians 1 sums it up best. 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 26, and I think this is the bottom of your sermon notes. Verse 26 says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Friends, we are no different sitting here this morning. I know some of us are doctors and some of us are dentists and some of us are carpenters and teachers and truck drivers and stay-at-home mothers. But we need to remember where we have come from. And I love that Matt used it earlier. Ephesians 2 says, for you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You weren't ordinary. You were dead. It goes on to say that you were children of God's wrath. But then that word says, but God. But God. Is there any greater news in all of history? But God, being rich in mercy and love, made us alive again in Christ Jesus. Amen. The idea that we were dead in our trespasses. Dead men don't grab life rafts. That's what Vody Bauckham says. But while we were dead in our sin and transgressions, God sends his own son to live a perfect life and die in our place. Greatest news in all of history is that we're not ordinary. We were dead. And God... His rich mercy and love made us alive again in Christ Jesus. And so, friends, I would challenge you. I would be encouraged. I would challenge you, but be encouraged that these were the 12 that God prayed all night about. They were moral failures. They were ordinary men in the hands of an extraordinary God. And so are you this morning. Let us pray. Almighty God, we just just thank you for who you are, for seeing us in our state of being dead in our sins and trespasses, Lord. Yet you stepped in and sent your son to die in our place that we might be alive again with Christ Jesus in Christ Jesus God we just thank you that you equip and you use ordinary weak insufficient unworthy people for your glory God 
God, we pray that our lives would would look like that of the apostles who are ordinary men in the hands of an extraordinary God and who took the mission seriously to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We love you. Thank you for the cross. In your son's most holy name, amen.